Have you ever noticed in life that there are some questions that are just so profound that the more you think about them, the more confusing and complicated they get? For instance, why is it that 7-Eleven has locks on its doors when it's open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day? Makes no sense. Why is it that sandwich meat is round but the bread is square? Why does Hawaii have an interstate highway system? Some of you will get that at lunch. It's an island, if that helps you. Just a little cue there. Uh, Maybe another one. If you hit yourself in the face really, really hard and it hurts, does that mean you're really strong or you're really weak? Lastly, why is it that Commanders fans keep thinking year after year they're going to win a game? I want to say good morning and welcome to the Mount. My name is Adam. If you're a Commanders fan, we love you and we are praying for you today. Uh, Well, hey, we are beginning a new series today titled Tipping Point. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to dive in to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk and really kind of dive in. And Habakkuk's driving question throughout the three chapters of his book is this, if you're taking notes, why doesn't God seem fair? Why doesn't God seem fair? And I'm sure in in a room this size across all of our campuses, we all, the majority of us, if not all of us, have asked that very same question at some point in our spiritual journey, whether we are a believer in Jesus or not. We've all wondered, why is it that God doesn't seem fair? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter one. If you have version or your Bible app, it's really easy to find right there. If you have your physical Bible, you might just get started in the table of contents and work your way from there. If you have downloaded the Mount app, you can pull it up right there in sermon notes and you can see all of our, our notes and our references. If you have not downloaded that app, I would encourage you to do that today. It's not only a great place to follow along week after week with our speakers on the sermons, but it is also a great tool for you to get all of the communication and things that we pump out to you as a church. And so while you are turning there or finding it or downloading it, whatever you happen to be doing, let's talk about the book of Habakkuk and make sure we're on the same page with the context and the background. Habakkuk, for those of you that don't know, is one of the 12 minor prophets that we see in the Old Testament, the the first book of the Bible. When we say it's a minor prophet, what we don't mean is that his message is less than, right? Like there's these major prophets who have big messages and minor prophets who have less than messages. No, what we mean by a minor prophet is that his book is just shorter. It's smaller. In fact, the book of Habakkuk is only three chapters long. Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets that we will see in the Old Testament. And surprisingly, Habakkuk is the one prophet out of the entire Bible that we know the least of. It is actually shocking and surprising how little we know about Habakkuk and who he was as a person. What we do know is that Habakkuk was writing around the year 600 BC, give or take a little bit. He was writing to the nation of Israel, or God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And the nation of Israel at the time, for those of you that have maybe kind of need to brush up on your Israelite history, the nation of Israel around 600 BC when Habakkuk is writing is divided into two kingdoms. They are one people and two kingdoms. They have the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom, out of the 12 tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom has 10 of those tribes. And the northern kingdom at this period in time when Habakkuk is writing around 600 BC is no longer existing as a kingdom. They've been invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrian army came in from the nation of Assyria and they took over and they took them all back captive or in exile in Assyria. And so all we have left is the southern kingdom, which comprises of the last remaining two tribes of Israel. Now, these two tribes, the southern kingdom of Israel, known as the kingdom of Judah, is in a really, really bad spot. They have a king by the name of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is a really, really bad king. Not because he does bad things, but because he allows, and he does do some bad things, but mainly because he allows God's people to engage in bad things. And what we see in the nation of Israel during the reign of Jehoiakim is we see a group of people who are doing whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want, to fit their needs and their wants and their desires. They're worshiping false gods. They're sacrificing children to these pagan gods. They're living for themselves. They're only thinking about themselves. And the entire nation of of Israel is basically in this downward spiral, this fall into sinfulness and disobedience and moral failure. And so on one hand, when Habakkuk steps onto the scene, you have the people of God, the nation of Israel, half of them in captivity and the other half falling into moral corruption. And on the other hand, you have this neighboring nation, the Babylonians, who are rising to power and they are becoming a world dominating force. And it's, and it's in this moment that we pick up in the book of Habakkuk. And what's interesting about the book of Habakkuk is it is unlike any other prophet that we have in Scripture. Well, while typically the way the, the prophetic books works is the prophet receives a message from God and he takes that message from God and tells it to the people, right? It's, it's, the, it's the idea that God is talking to the people. In the book of Habakkuk, it's flipped. What we see in the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk is saying the people are talking to God. And instead of a book that reads like a book, what we get is a book that reads more like a private conversation between a prophet and the God that he loves. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 1, and it begins with this. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, what does he cry? He cries, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. In in essence, Habakkuk is like, God, I am crying out to you for help, and you're silent. I'm surrounded by my enemies. Everywhere I look, there's there's violence and injustice and oppression and all these things, and I know you could do something, but God, you're doing nothing. Like, God... What's the deal? Where are you? In other words, Habakkuk is saying, God, where are you? I'm just curious, anyone ever been there? Maybe you're, maybe you're there right now, right? I think we've all been there at times in our lives, whether we believe in Jesus or not. Tragedy strikes our country. A group of terrorists fly airplanes into buildings and kill thousands of innocent people. God, where are you? A 20-year-old walks into Sandy Hook Elementary and murders 26 kids. God, where are you in that? God, where are you? And not just at the national level. 
I think in our own lives we see this, right? God, I moved my family. Like, I moved my family across the country to take this job that I was sure in my heart of hearts as I prayed about it that you wanted me to take only to get there for six months later to get laid off. God, where are you? God, we've been trying and trying and trying to have a baby and nothing. We attend church, we pray, we're in a small group, we tithe. We do everything that good people who believe in Jesus are supposed to do, but yet we are still barren, God. Where are you? God, what happened to my marriage? It was so strong, and now it's crumbling. God, where are you? Why am I still single? Why did the cancer come back? Why have my grown kids walked away from their faith that I raised them in? God, where are you? Habakkuk continues in verse four. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Because of, the, because of the wickedness, because of the enemy, because of all the violence, he says the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. He says the bad guys are winning. Like he says, when I, when I look at our nation, when I look at our people, when I look at Israel, when I look at what you are doing, God, it seems like the good guys are being defeated, the bad guys are winning, the injustice is taking over, and it's overwhelming everything that is good. In other words, what Habakkuk is saying in this moment, he's saying, God, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. And this is Habakkuk's kind of main problem with God we're going to see over the next couple weeks. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. It's how can a good God allow such unfairness? How can a God who is so good and merciful and gracious and kind and loving and for his people allow such unfairness in the world? We've experienced this, right? You're, you're certain you're going to get the promotion. You've earned it. But instead, it goes to the person who shows up late and leaves early and does half the work but plays golf with the boss. And now you're stuck. You can't quit because you need the money. And it's just unfair. Maybe your kids finally got to that age where you can sleep in on Saturdays, and then the stinking coach scheduled an 8 a.m. practice every week. <laughs> God, why are you so unfair? How can a good God, allow that. Maybe a little deeper. Why is it that the little girl can die in the car wreck, but the drunk driver lives? Why is it that the family, the young couple who has tried over and over and over again to have a baby finally gets pregnant only to have a stillbirth, but at the meth house down the street, they're popping them out left and right straight to the foster care system? God, how are you a good God and you allow such unfairness? Habakkuk believed with everything in him that God was good, that God was kind, that he was loving and he was fair and he, he wouldn't tolerate evil and injustice in the world. And then there's this moment here in chapter one where what he believes about God does not equal the experience he is having. 
right? Like he says, I believe you are good. I believe you are just. I believe you are fair. I believe you are kind. I believe you care about your people. But when I look at the world around me, what I feel and what I see and what I experience, the two do not match up. And because of this, what we see in Habakkuk for the next couple chapters is Habakkuk begins doubting and questioning God's goodness and his character and his faithfulness. And I think Habakkuk wrestles with the very same question that all of us have to wrestle with is what do we do when our beliefs about God don't match what we experience in the world around us? What do we do when what we know about God is different from what we feel and see? And here's the reality, and this is the the sad part, because here, for so many of us, if if not all of us, because of the way American Christian church culture says, we have this underlying current that says, man, if you are a believer in Jesus and you begin to have doubts or concerns or questions or you lack confidence, don't ever express that to anyone, because that means your faith is not as strong as it could be. And so we're, we're taught from the, from the church culture and from the people around us that people who believe in Jesus don't have doubts. No, no, no. They are strong and they are committed and they are faithful and they will get through. And so what we do, because we might not be there, is we begin to pretend. We, we, we shove it down deep inside and we, we take our, our Christian sayings, the things that are supposed to comfort us, and we say, oh man, it's just, it's going to be okay. God's in control. Like, you know, God... God is sovereign. He's, you don't understand. He's, he's good. His will is so much better than yours. I just, just rest. And instead of being honest about our questions, we shove them down and pretend everything is gonna be okay. But when we look at scripture, it's like we see the opposite. We see people, person after person, who is open and honest about their doubts and their struggles and their concerns and their fears. I mean, look at the book of Psalms. A third of the book is people crying out, why, oh God? Like, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? They're, they're angry at God. They're frustrated with God. You look at the book of Job or the book of Lamentations and what you see are these two incredibly godly men who are basically expressing to God, God, you said X and then you did Y and that is unfair and I don't understand. You see Jesus, fast forward to the life of Jesus who lived this perfectly sinless life as the son of God and the son of man who was both human and divine. You see him on the cross as he's about to die in Matthew chapter 27 and he says this, It says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's questioning, doubting, wrestling, wondering. And in my experience as a pastor, I think there are so many of us who are so afraid to admit that we have questions, that we have doubts, And that we're confused because we don't want to seem less spiritual. I would argue that perhaps your very doubts, your very questions, your very frustrations are the thing that God has put in your path to mold you and shape you on your spiritual journey to be more like him. In fact, I would argue that our honest wrestling with God is a healthy part of our spiritual journey. Let me explain it this way. Pretend that this line is your life. 
And you're just kind of going through life, living your life, living the dream, you know, vacations, work, school, tests, whatever, I don't know what grade you're in, you know, and you're just going about life and things are great, and then all of a sudden something happens. Something happens that causes you to say, what I believed about God doesn't match X, my experience. I believed that God was good, then why is this bad thing happening? I believe that God was loving, then why is this unloving thing happening? I believe that God said, I will never give you more than you can handle. Why am I at the end of my rope overwhelmed and it seems like my entire life is crashing down? God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why is it right now I feel so alone and isolated? You, you hit this moment in your life where what you believe about God does not match with the experience that you feel around you. It becomes a tipping point. In his book, uh, Tipping Point, author Malcolm Gladwell, he's talking about a business principle, and when I read the book, I immediately, in my mind, and I just can't read any book without being like, oh, that's spiritual, that applies. And I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, and basically the essence of his book is, is he's saying, as you go through life, there is, especially businesses, there are these small moments that come up. And these small moments, while they seem insignificant and minute and not that important, they have the ability to exponentially change so much of our lives. And, and I read this and I thought, that makes total sense. Some of the examples he gives are like, hey, uh, think about water. It's one degree difference from water to boiling to, to, to gas. It's a one degree difference from rain to snow. He said, think about a river. A river's overflow, or it's, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. It's a very full river. It's a lot of water. And all of a sudden, one inch higher and it's overflowing and it's causing a catastrophe. It's a tipping point in the life of that thing. And here's what I know. In our spiritual lives, there are moments when we hit a spot where what we believe about God does not match what we feel, see, or experience. And it becomes a tipping point. And it makes multiple options and directions. We now have the opportunity to take that tipping point and see the different outcome that could happen. And some of those outcomes might mean we say, you know what, what I believed about God does not match what I'm feeling, so I'm giving up. I'm done with this thing. If God is so good and this bad thing happened to me, I can't believe in that God anymore and I'm out of here. Others of us, we, we pretend and we ignore it. We say, you know what, I'm gonna act like this part of my faith never happened and I'm just gonna go about the way I was. Or maybe it leads us to new intimacy, new depths and a new experience. And so Habakkuk in chapter one, he finds himself at this tipping point in this moment and so he goes to God and he basically looks at God and says, I don't understand what are you doing, God? And look at verse five. Listen to God's response. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, and their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They've all come intent on violence. So this, the, I'm laughing because I know where it's going, right? Like, so what happens here is the story of Habakkuk, right, is this. Habakkuk goes to God and he says, God, I'm surrounded by evil and injustice and this doesn't seem fair. You're an unfair God. I thought you were a fair God. I thought you were a loving God who protected his people. Now you're acting unfair, unloving, and not protecting your people. What is the deal with this? And God says, Habakkuk, 
I have a plan, don't worry. And here's his plan. He says, Habakkuk, I know my people are wicked. I know my people are living in sin. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up a neighboring army that is much more wicked, much more sinful, much more atrocious, much more violent, and I'm going to send them to my people to punish them and destroy them and ultimately leave them almost lifeless because that is my plan. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Habakkuk, and he does, I'd be like, God, what in the world are you thinking? Like, that doesn't seem to make things better. Your, your plan to fix and protect your people is to send in a wicked army that's exponentially worse to punish us and defeat us and destroy us. God, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem kind. There's no way I would want you to do this. And so what happens is he begins doubting, and he's arrived at this tipping point. And here's the question that we all have to wrestle with. What do we do when we arrive at a tipping point in our faith and we're not sure what we believe? Where what we believe does not match what we've always thought. The late theologian Tim Keller, he alludes to this in a principle in his book, The Reason for God, and I hope you find this incredibly freeing this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. Faith and doubt can coexist. Faith and doubt can coexist. Nowhere in scripture does it say to be strong in faith means you can't doubt. They can coexist. We see this in Mark chapter nine where this father goes to Jesus. His son is being possessed by a demon, by an evil spirit, and he's kind of doing all these crazy things, and the father goes to Jesus, tell him about it, and he says, it has often thrown him into the fire. The spirit has thrown the kid into the fire or a water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So he says, Jesus, like, if you could do anything, just like, just like fix this, take pity on us. And Jesus says, if you can? It's like, a, like what do you mean if I can? Listen to what he says. He says, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father, the, the best response he could give, he exclaims, I do what? I do, but help me come my in essence, the father says, I-, I believe, Jesus. Like, I know you can fix this. I know you can make this better. But man, I just doubt that you will. Like, I know you're good, and I know you're loving, but man, I, I just don't feel it right now. I don't-, I don't sense it right now. I know you are good, but everything I am experiencing doesn't feel good. I know that you are in charge, but it doesn't seem like you're in charge in this moment. I know that you will never leave me, but it sure seems lonely right now. I believe, I do, I really, really do, God, but there are parts of me that doubt. And here's what I want you to hear. Faith and doubt can coexist. You are not less spiritual if you doubt. You are not subpar in your Christian walk if you question God. Faith and doubt can coexist. You can believe and trust in Jesus and still have doubts and frustrations. Frederick Buchner, a theologian, says it this way. I love this. Doubts are the ants in the pants of the faith. They keep it awake and moving. I just, just picture that, right? <laughs> I'm never dancing again on stage, but... Um, <laughs> I'm sure that video will be everywhere. Like, there, there, there's just something about, like, like it says, doubt and faith can coexist because here's what I want you to know, church. Like, God can handle your doubts. Like, your frustrations are not bigger than him. 
your complaints, your doubts, your questions, your concerns, all of those things. He's not going, oh my gosh, I've never thought about that. That's a really good question. No, he fully knows what's in your heart. Philip Yancey says it this way. I love this. He says, he says, one bold message of the Bible is that you can say anything to God. You can throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment, and he can absorb it all because he is a good God. Habakkuk is at this tipping point in his faith journey where he says, what I believe about God doesn't match what I am seeing and experiencing. Just listen to him. I just want you to see as he, as he balances this, this faith and doubt in this last passage right here. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. A statement of faith. I believe this about you, God. But then he says, you, O Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous? A statement of faith followed by a doubting question. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up the more righteous than themselves? You can express doubt and faith. Some of you right now, you are at a tipping point. What do you do? You're at a point in your walk with Jesus where what you've thought you believed about God does not match the pain and the heartache and the frustration that you are experiencing and seeing and feeling. What do you do? You do the very thing Habakkuk does, the very thing the book is titled. You Habakkuk. You're like, what I mean? Habakkuk in the original language means to wrestle or embrace. It means to wrestle. The, 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 the imagery in the Old Testament was, was two wrestlers who are, 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 are grappling each other in this wrestling match, embracing each other, and neither one is willing to let go. They are holding on tightly, hoping to overcome the other. You are at this point in your life where what you believe about God does not match what you are experiencing. You wrestle with God. No matter what's going on, no matter what's happening around you, you embrace him. You wrestle with him back and forth. You say, God, I don't, under, I don't understand what you are doing and it doesn't make sense and it's okay to say, God, this doesn't seem fair. But you don't give up. You don't just push it under the rug. You embrace and you wrestle. Why? Because here's the hard part of the Christian faith. Sometimes God will take us through valley moments, difficult hard, painful moments because he knows it's the only way to get our attention and to come out differently. I was researching this past week and it turns out that things grow better in the valley than they do on the mountain. And I think the same goes for our faith. Things grow better in the valley than they do on the mountain. And I know this isn't what you wanna hear, but maybe the very thing that you are going through right now something that God has ordained in your life to show you and teach you something he would not have done any other way. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the book of Habakkuk and just for the story, the, the picture of him expressing such raw emotion, 
the same emotion that we feel, God, when you don't seem fair, when we wonder where you are. Maybe you're here this morning as we continue praying, and you're at a tipping point. There's something in your life where you've experienced something and it just doesn't match what you believed about God. It's, it's hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating, it's lonely, and it's painful. And it's caused you to wonder, man, is, God, where are you? This isn't fair. If that's you, just kind of in the, the stillness of this moment across all of our campuses, would you just raise your hand? I see your hands all over the room. If you, if you raised your hand, I want you to just kind of look up at me for a second. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're going through, but I, I know it's hard. And I know it's difficult. And I know everything in you right now. I, I wish I could tell you here's what God is doing, but I can't. So here's what I can tell you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Habakkuk could have very easily given up in chapter one. It wasn't until chapter three that he experienced something different. Don't give up. What God is going to do in and through you in this season right now, nobody knows, but one day you will look back and it might still be unfair, but you will be more intimate and deeper with him than you would have been otherwise. Don't give up. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for every hand that was raised that your presence would be felt. In the midst of that valley, God, would they remember that every valley has another side. There's always a way out. It's never an island in the middle of nowhere. God, would you, would you give them your supernatural strength and your presence to endure and to lean in and wrestle and embrace you and to come closer to you than they would have otherwise. God, would you not let us waste these Habakkuk moments. And this morning as we continue praying at all of our campuses, maybe you're here and today is the, the tipping point for you. You're here and you're saying, man, I, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus guy. I'm not sure about this whole faith thing. Let me just tell you, today is the tipping point, the decision where you can make what might seem small and insignificant can be a decision that will exponentially change your life for eternity and for the rest of the days you are on this earth. And that is the decision to believe and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you are here today, can I just tell you the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that you as a human being, you were born sinful. And I know that hurts for me to say, maybe I'll say the word, you were born selfish, you were born prideful, you were born where everything in your life was about you, and every decision, every thought is focused on what brings you joy and you happiness and you fulfillment and satisfaction. And because of that, you are separated from God. And you feel that separation, I know you do. I felt it 20 years ago when I was a college student. That feeling of nothing ever seems to satisfy, everything seems to be less than. And let me just tell you, 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you so that that bridge could be, that gap could be bridged so that you could have relationship with Jesus and be forgiven for all of eternity and live a new life for him. And this morning, your tipping point, if you wanna make that decision, you don't have to sign up for anything. All you gotta do is surrender your heart to him. 
at all of our campuses, just with our eyes closed and heads bowed, if you want to make that decision today to surrender your life to Jesus, would you just be bold enough to stick up your hand to raise it high? If your hand is raised, will you pray with me? Father, I am a sinner, and I need your love. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my king and my Lord and my Savior. Today, I repent and I run to you for all of eternity. Amen.